Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 41, An Inglorious Flight, The Battle of Bull Run, July 21st, 1861. Thank you for joining us this week. As a very quick initial note, I want to warn people that at Bull Run especially, units had not all been standardized and ranks were evidently rather erratic. I have tried to properly identify all officers by their correct rank and units at the time of the battle, but I may have made mistakes. Colonels often led brigades, while brigadier generals sometimes commanded divisions, even if informally. In addition, there was the ongoing oddity of competing ranks in the national versus state militias, even though in practice the two were functionally merged. These problems all affected both the Union and Confederate forces. I have tried to keep strictly accurate, but undoubtedly have made some mistakes somewhere, for which I offer apologies in advance. And now, back to our story. For two days, General Irvin McDowell endured one of the rarer experiences of human emotion. The immense moral weight of devising a new orders and tactics in the face of the enemy and imminent battle. The peculiar feeling of responsibility for so many thousands of lives can produce a rather disconcerting unease in even the bravest and best of men. McDowell at least handled it well enough in the moment. He displayed a certain amount of waspish temper, no doubt, but that proved a commonplace emotion for officers with independent commands. Everything they ordered seemed to go ahead far too slowly while desperately needed information only trickled in. As a bit of a bizarre side note, Oddities of a much different nature also trickled in towards the battlefield. McDowell had the unusual distinction of welcoming a number of rather unlikely guests, for it seemed all Washington had come to watch the spectacle. During the 20th and 21st, civilians with carriages heard of the impending battle and made their way down to Bull Run. And notably did so in rather better time than the army, despite coming armed for the world's greatest picnic, complete with a rather extensive wine collection. A handful, including Congressman John Logan, even joined in the fighting to come. Logan, for instance, had no uniform and basically fell in with a Michigan regiment, wearing, essentially, a tuxedo. He probably became the best-dressed soldier in history that day. He eventually became the best civilian-turned-officer in the entire army. More concerning, at least in one sense, was the immediate presence of Secretary of War Simon Cameron in person. To clarify... This is a cabinet-level position that involves a great deal of bureaucracy. The office holder was the only man who could give orders to the army. Well, not orders in the specific sense. But the secretary's word bore a considerable amount of weight, and no soldier below the august person of General-in-Chief Scott himself could afford to disregard his instructions. Said instructions would either come indirectly from the president, or were designed to fulfill the president's orders or needs. Well, Mr. Cameron was now personally present on the field, where he probably ought not to have been, and likely this cost General McDowell a certain amount of worry. But returning to those pertinent military affairs, on June 19th, McDowell finally learned of some key features of the battlefield, but then supplies too ran short and he had to delay once more to get additional rations up to the front. Still, for all of these delays... Irvin McDowell crafted an excellent plan of attack. 
The failure of Heinzelmann to perform the initial wide flanking maneuver with the Union left effectively made that position useless. Though it turned out that the water was too deep at Union Mill Ford, and the men could not have gotten across quickly anyway. Whatever the faults on the march, nature had a say in this war as well. Events would prove she showed no one favoritism. But particularly, she had enjoyed ruining the day of proud soldiers clad in Union Blue. Now then, General Tyler's dust-up at the fort simply made it clear that the Federals could not easily get across in that direction either, not without risking getting the army shot down in the creek. Now again, Bull Run wasn't too deep, hence the many fords in use. Yet attempting to march thousands of green soldiers across while under fire, well, that risked calamity to the army. The troops could not all do it at a run, and the artillery would require extra work and time to cross. Moreover, Tyler's attempted crossing proved two things. First, the Union couldn't easily clear the far side of Bull Run with artillery, and second, the rebels were over there in force. But once he had a chance to look around, General McDowell realized he had a third very strong option indeed, a move to his right and another flank attack. To the right, now that is, west of the Confederate position, lay a solid stone bridge, over which McDowell's troops, artillery, and wagons alike could all cross. Even better, the Warrenton Turnpike, a well-maintained modern road, led straight there from Centerville where the Federal troops are already camped. However, McDowell knew Beauregard would quickly detect such a movement, precisely because it was so obvious and could easily rush units to stop the advance early. The troops, trapped on the bridge, would be easy targets. Therefore, McDowell looked to an even wider flanking attack through Sudley's Ford. Only two miles away from the bridge, this latter ford allowed a reasonably easy crossing point. Once soldiers splashed across, they could march back southeast, secure the turnpike in the bridge, and reunite the army. McDowell would then have a powerful position on the Confederate flank. Even better, he would then have two good options available. First, he could continue along the river and strike the Confederates directly, or move south and capture Manassas Junction. Altogether, McDowell crafted one of the strongest battle plans in the war, and a model for its clarity of purpose at least. It could only work because the rebels had limited scouting available just then, and would likely miss the wide flanking move, but it could indeed work. Now the plan did have two weaknesses, but neither was entirely within McDowell's control. First, it was going to require a wide march by his troops. Now certainly not an excessive or long venture, but these were the same soldiers who performed a one-day march in uh, three days. And second, McDowell understood time was not on his side. He and his brigade commanders heard steam whistles from arriving trains on the 19th and 20th of July, each carrying carloads of Joe Johnston's troops from the valley. Though they did not know it, even more Confederates arrived from other points, most notably Wade Hampton and his legion. Now, Wade Hampton III was a rather interesting figure and demonstrates the very thin line between self-interest and self-promotion. Hampton didn't initially cheer on the cause of secession with any especial enthusiasm, perhaps because he had more than the average man to lose. 
Yet, once it happened, he would go on to attempt to emulate the brave deeds of his grandfather, a Revolutionary War brigadier. Our Wade Hampton has inherited his father's vast wealth in 1858, and in 1861, he would use that money to found his Legion, a regiment-sized force that incorporated cavalry and artillery alongside the infantry. Hampton personally financed it all at the start, including the food, cannon, rifles, uniforms, and all. Not surprising, of course, this military band immediately named him as its colonel. Hampton could do this because he was reputedly the richest man in the Confederacy. From his South Carolina plantations, he owned a whopping 3,000 slaves. That said, he had no military training whatsoever. But despite this lack of education, well, Hampton would prove a quick study and embodied the martial spirit and talent of the South. By war's end, he became one of a handful of lieutenant generals in the Confederate service. Yet more immediately, and importantly, the Confederates at Manassas had the services of a career soldier, Joe Johnston. Far more capable than Beauregard, he saw the fight coming after easily outfoxing Patterson in the Shenandoah Valley. Now, since the Manassas Gap Railroad ran from the valley to Manassas Junction, Johnston marched his 9,000 troops down to the nearest station. He loaded them up and quickly sent them racing to reinforce the main show. More significantly, however, he would soon arrive to take charge. When Johnston arrived on the eve of battle, just on the 20th, he formally ceded control to General Beauregard, since the latter knew the field and the disposition of the soldiers and already had a battle plan. Crucially, however, Johnston would in effect take over and make key decisions rallying the soldiers and reinforcing the lines when the fighting actually began. Beauregard, well, we'll see. Now, although capable, and even occasionally brilliant, General Beauregard had an irrationally exuberant streak and handled his first real command somewhat poorly. Of course, most men would, but he did make some very unusual mistakes. Now, among other things, Beauregard completely mismanaged one of the main tasks of a commanding general, the organization of his army. This may sound like an odd point to even note. But balancing the force structure and ensuring strong and clear lines of communication and authority was a major task. Beauregard had 24,000 men. That was no small force for the New World up to this point, and it needed a firm hand. Remember, too, that unless one had a telegraph line nearby, all communications were literally just messages or letters handed off from one courier to the next. Beauregard neglected this key aspect of leadership. Physically, he had more or less positioned his units well, almost directly south of Centerville and blocking the Federal advance, although he did fail to monitor the fords far to the northwest. Now, the problem lay in how he aimed to use the army if it came down to it. In orders shortly before the battle, Beauregard decided he would maneuver by divisions instead of brigades, this perfectly sensible idea fell to the cold reality of planning. Unfortunately, you see, Beauregard had not bothered to assign any brigades to these illusory divisions, nor name the generals in charge of them. This left the officers in confusion and each communicating directly with General Beauregard. This became a more difficult problem due to the fact that Beauregard intended to deliver attacks, not merely receive them. 
Even recognizing that McDowell might have superior numbers, Beauregard believed that he could disrupt the attacking column with a strong punch across Bull Run by his own right hand. Depending on whom you ask, that was meant to be a corps led by Brigadier Theophilus Holmes, except the corps might or might not exist at all. And Beauregard failed to make this arrangement known to Theophilus Holmes. This plan was not a model of clarity of purpose. Back on the Union side, General McDowell held a council of war on the evening of the 20th, laying out his plans and ensuring that everyone knew their assigned role. Councils of this particular war have a well-earned reputation for contributing to poor planning, hesitation, and delay. This one, at least, laid out both the commanding officer's intentions and each unit's roles in accomplishing it. McDowell aimed to drive between Beauregard and the railroad, hoping to cut off any reinforcements from Joe Johnston. General Tyler, perhaps a bit miffed by McDowell's rebuke for the dust-up at the Ford, complained that Johnston's force was undoubtedly already present. General, he said, we have got the whole of Johnson's army in our front, and we must fight the two armies. Yet McDowell was not dissuaded. If he had to fight both, he would fight both. Besides, there was no use helping the matter, for General Patterson over in the valley had failed to do his job or anything else of use. That night passed too quickly and often sleeplessly for the Union boys. General McDowell, too, tossed and turned with a cold weight in his gut, while Colonel William Tecumseh Sherman thought of home and family. Many a man turned pen to paper in the clear summer night sky and left notes expressing their fears and hopes alike. They all knew of the imminent battle, officers in the ranks too. What it would mean for them personally, whether honor or disgrace, death or glory or some other fate, they did not know. So the July night passed in peace, almost the last night of peace the nation would know for four long years. The officers roused the men and assembled at 2 a.m. on July 21st, 1861. Company by company, regiment by regiment, brigade by brigade, they stepped off to meet fate that morning, many hours before dawn. Of course, it all went immediately wrong, but only in the usual military fashion of thousands of humans all gathered together trying to get to their destination in the dark. General Tyler's troops, meant to keep the rebel eyes fixed on them once the sun rose, stepped out first. They tried to get off and past the road in order to free up the pathway for the other units, who had a longer trail to follow. Of course, nothing went right, probably because few men are altogether alert at that hour. Tyler's whole body ended up traveling just slow enough to stop everyone else from their own movement. Finally, McDowell simply ordered them to step off the road entirely so that the divisions of Heinzelman and Hunter could perform their part, the vital business of doing all that flanking. So it went, hour after hour. As it turns out that a pathway easy for farmers or merchants in peaceful daylight rapidly becomes more difficult when traversed by an army at night and an era long before electric lighting. It was only about a six-mile route or so, but it was also the only route, so regiments and batteries all had to crowd the same road, one after another. Daniel Tyler's division took four painful hours to invest the stone bridge on the Warrenton Turnpike, despite having the best and shortest road of all, hardly more than a quick morning stroll. 
he fired off several cannon shots as a signal to the rest of the army that he was in place and settled down to skirmish with the Confederate units he saw opposite. He did not know, due to the slowdowns and a wrong turn taken in the dark, the flanking force would not arrive at Sudley's Fort until 9 a.m. Now let us turn to the south side of the bridge. There, Brigadier Nathan Shanks Evans faced off against Tyler, and here the additional time given to the Confederates made all the difference. Evans posted two companies at the bridge as skirmishers and held the rest of his men in reserve. Even with the advantage of the defense, this would probably not stop Tyler's division if they pushed. After an hour or so, Evans realized that Tyler either wouldn't or couldn't attack and started to grow suspicious. Then he received word from a couple of scouts he had posted on his own authority up at Sudley's Ford and quickly had confirmation in hand from an observation post. The Federals were turning the Confederate left flank. Undoubtedly realizing it was too late to stop them at Sudley Ford, Evans made one of the most fateful decisions of the war. Instead of falling back, he left his skirmishers at the Stone Bridge and took every other man to receive the flank attack. Though he could not entirely know the number of Federals engaged, he must have realized they far outclassed the companies he could spare. If it became a battle of numbers, the numbers would win. Yet Evans had some advantages just in that moment. He had time to quickly deploy the troops present, as well as the ability to place them on a hill overlooking the road. This he did, placing Major Chatham Robert Wheat on the left hand. Major Wheat was a man who could not get enough of war, it seemed, and had gone from the Mexican-American War to filibustering to campaigning with Garibaldi in Italy, and finally came home to fight once more. He was just about the last man any Union soldier would want to meet on the battlefield, and he led his company of Louisiana Tiger Rifles with the vengeful fury of a man who appeared to be built of little else but vengeful fury. Though not quite the first surprise, and not the best surprise, of the war, Evans' move proved decisive that day. When Colonel Ambrose Burnside led the 1st Regiment in line south, trying to get in the rear of the Confederates, and also to open up the stone bridge to Federal control and thereby add Tyler's troops to this all-out attack, well, Burnside ran face-first into an angry storm of bullets and shells. Shanks Evans, running on little more than coffee and a furious bluff, stopped the Union movement in its tracks. His companies shot every bullet they had, and fired off the cannon so quickly that Burnside lost his horse immediately, and came to believe that Evans had whole regiments atop the hill instead of companies. Conveniently for the Confederates, they were also able to post themselves atop the high ground north of Young's Branch Creek. This was important because it kept the Union troops from occupying the crossroads with the Warrenton Turnpike, and crushing Evans and any reinforcements from both sides. It also kept open one road for reinforcements and bought just a little bit more time. As Colonel Porter deployed in line next to Burnside, bringing up the next Union regiment, the Confederate Major Wheat performed one of the most daring and possibly mad assaults of the war, charging down the hill and attacking the Union forces. Though outnumbered, the Tiger Rifles did their duty energetically and charged twice their number and more Federals. They suffered for it, too. Major Wheat himself took a bullet through the chest. Long ways, it actually passed through one armpit and came out the far side. 
dragged back to the surgeon's tents, Wheat was gravely informed that he must die of such a severe wound. Wheat, apparently too bullheaded for death itself, replied, I don't feel like dying yet. Yet while Major Wheat apparently busied himself by intimidating the Grim Reaper, other men were out dying in his stead on the hill. This happened because once they sighted a real enemy to fight, Union Generals Heinzelman and Hunter had to pause, deploy all their troops from a column to a line, and then actually sort out how to attack. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, Brigadier General Barnard B. and Colonel Bartow heard the fighting and marched their commands north under orders to meet it. General B., for one, believed he was going to deal with the skirmish force. But when General B. realized he had a real fight on his hands, he practically leapt for joy. He then pitched in without pausing to ask Beauregard for additional instructions, which probably saved the Confederate Army from defeat. Shanks Evans had taken no small amount of punishment, but he indeed successfully gathered all the time necessary for soldiers to assemble on the Confederate left flank, now quickly becoming the real center. Shortly after 10 a.m., the Confederates scraped together more than 5,000 men on the hill, but the Union assembled a force three times that size. Now it was the northern boys' turn to open up and fire, and open up they did, sending a withering storm of shot and shell to harass the southerners. At 10.30, the Confederates tried another charge straight at the Federal line, which had closed the distance somewhat and made this a bit more practical. Yet this actually went worse for them compared to Wheat's initial charge, which produced confusion in the Federal ranks, but only at the cost of serious casualties. Yes, this new charge bought time, but at a far greater cost in blood. The extended Union lines brought a wide field of fire down upon the attacking columns. This was a particular problem for General Barnard B.'s command, which had attacked with the most vigor. Evans and Bartow failed to keep pace. Unfortunately, this placed B directly in front of the Union line and attracted seemingly every bullet made in the last decade to their position, from the front and both sides together. Wildly outnumbered, they withdrew back up the slope and took even more casualties for their trouble. By the end of the attack, whole companies were rendered effectively useless. Evans, B., and Bartow withdrew their commands and slowly retreated over Young's branch. But at this point, the Confederates received the best sign imaginable. Though pushed to the limit, they sighted a strong body of reinforcements marching to their aid, clad all in their iconic uniforms of gray. The 4th Alabama went to a line up with the Johnny-come-latelys and stopped the onrushing Union columns with fresh reinforcements. Then the 2nd Wisconsin, clad all in their iconic gray uniforms, aimed and fired a lethal volley that scythed through the Confederate ranks. The surprise of finding that a relief force was actually a hostile one, nearly in their rear, completely broke the Confederates, who collapsed into a rout. To explain what just happened, we need to step back briefly. Around 11 a.m., General Tyler still stood at the stone bridge with those annoying skirmishers warning him off. Then he received the orders he wanted more than anything. McDowell told him it was time to attack. Obviously, things had not gone perfectly across Bull Run, but that meant Tyler must be able to flank the Confederates with a little luck. But Tyler had something better than luck. He had Colonel Sherman. 
Sherman led a brigade and splashed through the water north of the bridge, a decision made on the simple logic that whatever the Confederates might have guarding the bridgehead was obviously not guarding this half-visible ford. Remember that Tyler was still smarting from his run-in at Blackburn's Ford and the following criticism from McDowell, and did not have a good way to gauge the strength of the Union's watching his front. Colonel Keyes then led a second column directly behind Sherman and the two companies Evans left behind wisely decided not to slug it out with a force 30 times their number. This group marched almost directly east, and more or less by perfect timing, slammed into the retreating commands of Evans, B, and Bartow. The effect resembled a professional boxer delivering an uppercut to an opponent already reeling. All order in the Confederate units, still operating without a unified command, broke down, and they ran as fast as their legs could carry them for the rear. Along the way, they slammed into their real reinforcements, Wade Hampton's Legion, who witnessed the confusing sight of hundreds of men rushing wildly past or even through the ranks. Then the Union pursuers caught up and slammed into Hampton's now disorganized force, which was also now hilariously outnumbered. After a brief fight, these Confederates also fled the field, now, many would eventually form up another mile southeast on Henry House Hill, but many others had left their bones on the field of battle, or fled too far or in the wrong direction to rally. McDowell now had three divisions on the field, forming up into a single strong attacking force, and flush with victory. He had effectively removed something like 20% of the Confederates, and pried them out of two defensive positions. This was a signal moment and a great success, even such as it was. He believed that with another push, he could capture Manassas Junction three miles away, and thereby remove the threat of Johnston's reinforcements. By necessity, however, General McDowell did give the Confederates some time to recover. His forces had gone into a line of battle under pressure, and some confusion in the ranks needed clarification. He did this personally, quickly reuniting all forces along the Warrenton Turnpike. He was, at this moment, on the far left of the original Confederate position, and indeed dangerously close to punching through their rear. All the same, a more difficult task lay before him, even as he wheeled the full might of the army into place. Now, although he may not have entirely realized it, there was one serious problem which became more pressing over time. Most of the troops had been up long before dawn, they marched several miles, and then went into battle. By noon, they had been up for ten hours, with little food and no rest. If they had any canteens, those had likely been emptied long before, and opportunities to refill them were few and far between. And this was July, in the south, when the summer heat began scorching everything it touched. That said, McDowell was also absolutely correct in continuing his push in terms of military doctrine. Whatever the human cost, there was no better choice. However, he also made sure to arrange his troops so as to make best use of them. Burnside soldiers, who had borne the initial brunt of the Confederate attacks and had to deploy right in the face of the enemy, were moved over to the far right where they could hopefully recover. There was just one problem. Joe Johnson, as we've seen, had already reached the field and his reinforcements were either also present or about to arrive. Indeed, he had been active all morning, and this would prove the crucial difference between victory and defeat. Less than half a mile distant, 
the Confederates finally managed to steady their retreating forces atop Henry House Hill. The new line, in fact, anchored close to the same stone bridge where Tyler skirmished that morning, but now stretched out towards the southwest, roughly in parallel with the Warrenton Turnpike, and facing off against the growing Federal threat. Somewhat bizarrely, units had been standing up there immobile even while Evans, B., and Bartow slugged it out in a losing fight over at Young's Branch. A couple hours back, General Thomas J. Jackson arrived under orders and invested the hill. However, he refused to advance to support the other units in front, though even now it's unclear exactly why he made that decision. Later events would prove General Jackson one of the most aggressive and mobile commanders in American history, and it was exactly the wrong choice under most military doctrines. Indeed, his failure to support the troops already fighting allowed the Federal advance to completely wreck three brigades, which streamed to the rear half-dead. And yet, it turned out to be exactly the right choice for this battle. Because Jackson wasn't involved in the previous fighting, his units were fresh and ready for action. Because he stood up on the crest of the hill, retreating units could potentially rally around his Virginians and more reinforcements fell into line alongside him. General Joe Johnston spent his time attempting to rally these men and get every other unit he could move up to the fight. Even though officially General Beauregard was the commander on the field, the latter did little initially, while Joe Johnston made multiple decisions. Indeed, Beauregard failed to even realize he was under attack until it was nearly too late. To go back a step, the previous day, Johnston arrived on the field after, well, three days awake, spent hurrying his command along by road and rail. When he finally made it, he glanced at some plans Beauregard had made to attack the Federals, perfunctorily approved them, laid down under a tree, and immediately fell to sleep. He rose early the next day, however, ready for whatever that day might bring, and fully intending to move on the offensive. And yet that same morning, McDowell launched his assault, and Johnson recognized that the military reality was quickly moving on, plans or no plans. Beauregard initially stuck to his thoroughly impractical intention of attacking at that moment. Though Johnson had quickly approved Beauregard's scheme last night, he grew concerned about the sounds of gunfire coming from the north. He urged General B. to hurry along that morning, and suggested that he and Beauregard move up to observe the situation at hand. They did so in time to recognize that it was rapidly growing worse. General Johnson watched in horror as a stream of routing men flowed back towards their position. Crucially, however, in this moment he stepped forward, not back. All available units must be called towards this position, and the men rallied for another stand. General B., distraught at the state of his command, which at this point had functionally ceased to exist, rode up to Johnston. Johnston calmed him with a commendable spirit, saying, I know it was not your fault, General B. Don't despair, the day is not lost yet. Instead, he instructed B. to rally all the men he could, regardless of whose command they were nominally in, and get them into the fight alongside Jackson. Then he, that is, Johnston, approved Beauregard's suggestion to let the latter take command on Henry House Hill, while Johnston took on the role of getting all those other units up, and wringing some kind of order out of the chaos. Johnston then rode off to get everyone up into the fight that was actually going on while they had time, and also to speed the last of his units from the train. 
That was four regiments under Edmund Kirby Smith, and 4,000 men could easily make a difference in this fight. But time was running very short. Smith and the soldiers were only setting foot on solid ground at 2 p.m. At just about the same moment, the Federals had finished their reorganization and were launching a fresh assault. Back on Henry House Hill, General B. achieved an ironic form of immortality. Although somewhat grateful that General Jackson had stood staunchly in the face of enemy fire, he seems to have had some irritation at Jackson's immovability. The latter trait evidently applied to both the attack and retreat equally, at the same time that B. aimed to assault the Union lines and break up their attack before it could slam home. This was, notably, the same tactic he had tried previously. It failed then because he was not supported, and therefore came under intense pressure from front and flanks together. According to many histories, and in particular those admiring Thomas Jackson, B. approvingly said something like, Form, form, there stands Jackson like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginians. Or at any rate, that was the official version. Quite a few other commenters note that B. more likely complained that the immobile Jackson was standing like a damn stone wall. Though the latter makes more sense for B. personally, and has the evidence of his character and circumstance, we will never know. B. could not clarify the issue, for he attempted to lead a new charge and died from a Union bullet. Nonetheless, he had fought as hard as anyone and bought precious time for Beauregard, who managed to cobble together a decently strong defensive line. At this moment, creeping towards mid-afternoon, McDowell launched a new attack that threatened to obliterate that line. On the far federal right, McDowell ordered forward two batteries of guns up Henry House Hill to close range with the Confederates. He intended to more or less shotgun them in the face. Though a bold plan, it was also a good example of how artillery went into action in the Mexican-American War. Yet the improved range of rifled muskets quickly began to tell, and brought down gunners and horses alike. One of the officers in charge of the batteries believed that marksmen were shooting from the Henry House, which may have been true, as Confederate skirmishers still held it. He opened fire on the structure. Though not unjustified under the rules of war, the bombardment dealt a mortal wound to the elderly widow, Judith Henry. She died several agonizing hours later, and in her case a bitter irony was that she was bedridden and carried out of her house by her children earlier, but so exhausted and ill was she that she asked to be taken back so as to die in her own bed. Either way, she was merely the first of many civilians to perish in this cruel war. Just or not, in keeping with the laws of war or not, Many thousands would follow her to the grave. And the grave came quickly for many more Union men, too. The artillery batteries had been promised immediate infantry support in order to keep down the threat of enemy fire while the gunners went to work. The main force intended for this role were the 11th New York Fire Zouaves, who enthusiastically, if somewhat ineptly, made their way up the slope. There they now faced a considerable test of courage, taking fire from General Jackson's men and more rebel units nearby. Some broke and ran, though most stayed in line and returned fire. At this moment, however, another wartime legend began to be written. On the far Confederate left, the cavalry regiment of James Ewell Brown, or Jeb Stewart, launched an attack against the Zouaves, and the fighting came down to bayonets against sabers. The New Yorkers held their position, 
and even turned back the rebels, but having been disorganized, the officers could not get the men back in line to support the artillery. This made a crucial gap in the intended federal firepower, and one that would have terrible consequences. One of Jackson's officers, a man named Colonel Cumming, decided he was not going to casually wait around until the artillery opened up. But not intending to flee, he did the only thing he could think of, and raced down the hill with his regiment to capture the guns instead, or at least drive them off the field. Captain Griffin, leading the main battery, would have fired, but a superior officer, Major Barry, forbade it, believing that the advancing units were Union due to their blue uniforms. Obviously, this was not even the first example of such confusion in this battle alone, but it's not clear why Major Barry thought that reinforcements would be running towards the cannons from the enemy lines, although it is entirely possible that he simply got turned around in the battle and assumed that they were the expected support. They were not. Within minutes, it was all over. The Confederates completely overran both batteries, sending the remaining gunners fleeing. Though General Jackson may not have intended the move, he saw the advantage in it and rushed support up to the position. Yet he did not retain control of the guns for long. Soon, a new Federal attack erupted to recover those guns, which they did, only to fall prey to a Confederate counterattack counter that drove them off once more. In fact, it's not even entirely clear how many charges and countercharges took place to secure the guns. This entire wing of the battle turned into a blood-soaked swirl of chaos. Unfortunately, it also distracted Irvin McDowell. Without a subordinate place to command this wing, as Johnston did, he wound up desperately moving from unit to unit, rallying soldiers. While effective in the moment, it also failed to bring him any closer to controlling the battlefield. He would launch attacks with no more than a brigade at a time, and often less, ignoring the rest of the fight and failing to bring into action the large reserves of fresher troops. Of course, he was hardly the only officer to make this mistake. None of these men had even commanded so much as a regiment, and now they had taken on an awful responsibility. By 4 p.m., the Union force had taken a severe beating. Every attack dispersed against the Confederate line up on the hill. These men, some of whom had fought and marched for hours upon hours while burning up, began to falter. Even if their courage did not fail, their strength dwindled. Men fell out of line in sheer exhaustion or in a desperate search for water. Some men, dehydrated by the sun fatigue, dropped dead of heat stroke. And yet the Confederate line fell near to breaking as well. Though somewhat better rested on average, they endured the heat also, and many had dispersed. Union charges nearly penetrated the Confederate lines on several occasions. The men wavered. One more charge might break them. And then the absolute worst thing possible happened for McDowell, for it was the one thing he could not predict. Finally, Joe Johnston's last body arrived on the field. And worst luck of all, it arrived along the road south. Now it was a Confederate brigade's turn to appear suddenly on the extreme Federal flank. This was the force under Kirby Smith, who had rushed to the battle post-haste. Ironically, he rushed very nearly to his doom, for he took a stray round only moments later. But he did survive that wound. In his place, Colonel Elsie, a Maryland secessionist, took command and led the troops into battle. Just behind them, Colonel Jubal Early, 
raced even further out on the flank, towards the west. The combined weight of Elsie and Early threw the disorganized, reeling Federal right into complete chaos. Colonel Oliver O. Howard's lone regiment received the weight of four or five, and his men were exhausted and bloodied and in no shape to fight anymore. They broke, and they ran. But in doing so, they completely uncovered the flank, which just dissolved. Their route caused the next regiment to rout, which then spurred the next to take flight, and the one after that. Indeed, many of these were no longer even coherent regiments after the day's toll. Companies had been split off from regiments in the madness of battle until the men simply fought wherever they happened to be. But this broke down communications and command and control, and no one could rally the right. It was over. Beauregard, seeing this movement from atop Henry House Hill, seized his chance and launched an attack of his own, with every man who could or would move. On another day, on another battlefield, it might have failed. Yet today it was more than enough. The Federal Army broke down in retreat. It was over. Some units stayed intact, such as Colonel Sherman's. Though beaten, they remained unbent and unbroken. They retreated, yes, but in good order and carefully covering the rear. Though Beauregard ordered several attacks against the routing Federals, which succeeded in taking prisoners or causing a few casualties, but accomplished little more, Joe Johnston tried to advance with the last few regiments guarding the ford. If they could race to Centerville, they just might trap the Union Army in a vice grip. They went across Bull Run, but quickly discovered that McDowell had not neglected to guard this flank. Nonetheless, it was over. The routing Federals performed well in defeat in one way, however. Though it took them three days to march from Washington to Centerville, they managed to get back in only one. Unfortunately, half the army did so by throwing away all their baggage, packs and guns included, and fleeing in blind panic. The civilians, who came out, sometimes angrily harangued them, told the soldiers there was no danger, and even waved pistols. But the fleeing men could not be stopped. Gripped by fear, they refused all reason or words until they reached the apparent safety of the capital. It was over. It was all over. And yet, it was not quite over. The routing men slouched their way back into the camps around Washington, where most stayed with the army and did not rush home in shame. Those who quit the field in good order marched safely back to Centerville, rested and prepared to receive an attack. The artillery had saved most all their guns, and if some of the heavy baggage had been lost, it might also be replaced. A Union cavalry force even drove back a Confederate one seeking to exploit the retreat. It was not over. McDowell, however, recognized that he could not stay put with half his army running, even if they were running from, well, nothing anymore. He packed up and marched back to Washington, as mentioned, arriving on the 22nd, probably expecting to receive the biggest humiliation of his life, facing up to his failure to General Chief Whitfield Scott. He arrived under a driving rainstorm that at least masked this retreat. But it was not over. Now, next week, we are going to return and examine some of the after-effects and the consequences of the battle. But today I want to look at McDowell's performance. 
as we mentioned, this was a pretty strong battle plan, but he did make some key mistakes, and there were lessons that would take many officers on both sides of this war another year to learn. For example, McDowell could have arranged to have guides or way stations to make certain that the troops would get to Sudley Ford in time. Additionally, once they had advanced and taken Warrington Turnpike, they could have dug in and essentially resisted the main Confederate line while a stronger force flanked again, circling around and pinning the Confederates against Bull Run. But these were kinds of tactics that simply hadn't been developed yet, that they didn't know how to do. And in the fight, he didn't have any clear leaders in control of an individual flank. Again, this was a problem that would not be resolved for at least another year, and even then many of the Corps commanders proved to have issues with leadership. Irvin McDowell, whatever his failures on Bull Run, would remain as one of the nation's top soldiers. And in many ways, he really did have the talent and the ability. What he did not have was luck. As we will see, everything goes wrong for Irvin McDowell. But sometimes, too, he was a bit of a scapegoat for others. Next time, we will again look at the aftermath of Bull Run, but also at the arrival of a particularly peculiar soldier. George Brinton McClellan is coming to lead the Army of the Potomac. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you'll come back next time.